Hello and welcome to the Everyday Problems podcast, a podcast about the problems we face each day as we go about our busy lives. I'm Tom Corneal and my co-host Liam Tarvit and I have had many dealings with depression and anxiety and other related issues and wanted to provide a safe space where we can normalise the conversation around mental health and its impact on everything from the workplace to grief to just getting through the day. I should point out that we're not medical professionals and we don't profess to have all the answers, but we are veterans of the embattled mind and we hope that by sharing our war stories we might shed some light on solutions that could be useful to you or people that you know. For this episode and hopefully the next one, we thought we'd try something a bit different. Liam and I decided that since we've been talking to you for so long, it might be about time that we actually introduce ourselves, or perhaps that's reintroduce ourselves for those who've been listening since the beginning. We've never really taken proper time to explain how each of us arrived at this point where we're recording a podcast about mental health and other day-to-day challenges. So, for this episode, it's just me, Tom Cornell, and I'm going to do my best to give you a bit of insight into who I am and why I'm doing this. So here goes, I'd like to introduce me. Well, hello there. How are you doing? It's Tom here, and this feels a little unusual. Um, Liam and I have definitely done some sessions um, sort of solo, but ordinarily with a guest, and today there is no guest, it's just me. So Liam and I thought it would be a good idea to do a couple of sessions which essentially just explore a little bit about your hosts, because after all, We've shared some pretty intimate stuff on here about our mental health, about some of our adventures and challenges with it. Um, Good times, bad times, funny, scary, sad. Um, But we've, we've shared an awful lot with you. But I don't know that we've really talked much about the the humans that we are in day-to-day life because believe it or not we're not just podcasters um i mean if we were then we'd be living a pretty sparse existence right now because we have not been good at keeping up to date uh, with this show we've been really really busy lately um we have everyday problems of our own uh, not problems so much just that life is really busy right um I'm going to let Liam talk about himself when he gets a chance to record something of his own. Um, But suffice to say that Liam has a job which has been directly affected by the global pandemic. As as I speak, it is the, what, the 17th of July 2021. In the UK, we are two days away from the lifting of all restrictions, supposedly. Um... And so we've been in lockdown uh, of one kind of another for about a, well, almost a year and a half. Um, And Liam, for that time, has been doing a a day job which has been heavily affected by that and it's kept him extremely busy. Um, I, meanwhile, have been doing slightly different things which I'll get into over the course of um, this little chat Um, but I've been really busy as well and we do like to try and record these sessions together so if one of us isn't free then we tend to wait sometimes that means it it kind of um, gets kicked down the road for a bit too long and and we never get to talk to you so apologies for anyone who's been waiting for this podcast Um, really excited to, to finally be able to bring you a new episode and I hope that it is informative uh, and or um, entertaining and or useful in some way Um, but we shall see. Um, It will certainly be very honest and I 
don't know how heavily I'm going to edit it. Uh, you'd be surprised how much time gets spent editing these podcasts. When Liam and I talk into some pretty deep topics, there are times when I decide to leave the recording fairly um, untouched because I think sometimes the pauses and the, the hesitation can be really important to show the complex thoughts that we're going through, that we're sharing. It's important to show the depth and the sometimes the, even the discomfort of the things that we talk about and our guests talk about on the show, because that's kind of the nature of the show. There are also, however, times when I edit it a little bit more heavily, particularly when it's just Liam and I. I, for one, say, um, a lot. And that can be quite irritating. I don't know if it irritates you, but it irritates me when I listen back to myself. So I go back and cut some of those out. So who knows how much I'm going to edit this today. Um, anyways, this is me talking to you. I decided not to script this. I don't know yet whether that was a, a good or bad decision, but I wanted it to be honest and from the heart and in the moment, really. So where do I start? Well, the point of this is to talk to you a little bit about the all of the, the ingredients that make up me. Now, that's an awful lot. I'm 38 years old, and I it's going to take me an awful long time to drag you through 38 years of my life, so I probably won't do that. Instead, what I'm going to try and do is to give you a really quick uh, history kind of setup for who I am, but then talk to you about the last couple of years that led to this podcast and the situation as things are now. So, for a start, I was born in Taunton, the county town of Somerset in the southwest of the UK. My mum and dad, Tom and Julie, uh, fantastic people. Uh, my mum sadly passed away several years ago to autoimmune diseases, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and my dad is fit as a fiddle. Uh, I won't tell you uh, his age. I don't know if he'd want me to disclose that, but I can tell you. Um, he's, I'm half joking, by the way. My, my dad um, is the about the fittest person I know. He cycles every day. Um, he's just a bit of a shining light in terms of how to look after yourself when you get a little bit older. Um, I have three sisters. They're all older. They will hate me telling you how much older, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, I love them dearly. We're all very close as a family. And I grew up in a very noisy house full of music and people, friends. My mum and dad were always hosts. They would always have people over. My sisters would invariably have people staying, sometimes long term. Um, friends who, who wanted to get away from their own homes for a bit. We seemed to be... We took in much-loved waifs and strays who've come, become part of the greater family. My house was always a, a partying house um, and full of love, full of warmth, full of music. And that was kind of my upbringing. Um, I was born last in, in the line. There's about 11 years difference between myself and my youngest sister. Sorry, Jane, I've let that slip now. Um, and what that meant was I was very... Uh, I, I was given everything I needed and more as a child. I was so well looked after. I was so well loved. I was. I, I grew up in a world of love and support and people telling me that I was fantastic and talented and handsome and all of those things. And with two parents who, despite their own um, hard work throughout their lives, doing jobs that they 
sometimes enjoyed, sometimes didn't. Their philosophy was that they were doing what they did so that we didn't have to follow in their footsteps. My mum always said, you can be whatever you want to be. It was kind of a catchphrase of hers, and she meant it. And my dad um, tried to facilitate that, basically. He tried to do something to support each of us in our endeavours. When, when an opportunity came up to do something, to branch out and do something a bit different, he really wanted to help us out with that. Um, so that was the environment that I grew up into. Whether because of that love and protection that I experienced as a, a small child... Um, suddenly going out into the, the big world. I don't know, but I was kind of a timid youth. It took me until I was well into my teens before I really became confident. I was um, picked on a little bit at school because I, I don't know why, because I did my homework and I was, wasn't as, uh, I was a little bit on the chubby side and that I was called a square and all sorts of things like that. It wasn't heavy bullying, but, you know, kids can just be horrible. Um, I've, I later became friends with lots of those people and in conversations later in life realised that no child, well, usually, except for the proper bullies, most children don't realise the hurt that they're causing when they're, when they're doing these little things. But I was incredibly sensitive because I'd only ever known love and compliments and things. So that was tough. Um, I was a very confident uh, late teen. I went through um, some pretty rock and roll <laughs> years. That's a really lousy thing we do to attribute the term rock and roll to what is essentially often quite selfish and uh, nihilistic behaviour. I was on a bit of a, um, yeah, I don't know, a, a life in the fast lane thing when I was in my late teens, early 20s. Had lots of fun. Um but ended up getting quite burnt out, um, ended up um, leaving the thing that I loved to go and do something that I didn't love or even like a lot. And this is where the important stuff begins really for this podcast. So I studied music when I was, uh, didn't study at school, um, but I studied it at college. I was already in bands when we were at school. I didn't want to study music there because the teachers were a bit stuffy and and wanted you to write down about notes and things like that. I can't read music. Um, but I was in bands singing and playing guitar from when I was really young. I went to college and I studied popular music there for three years. I then went to uh, Bath Spa University and I studied commercial music for three years there as well. And when I left, I went straight, pretty much straight from graduating into a studio with a manager um, manager producer who'd managed some really really big acts in the 80s who'd been part of the record industry who'd had record uh, deals of his own um, back in the 80s and we were recording tunes together and I was going to be the next big thing as far as we were concerned and my manager was driving to and from London having lots of meetings with record companies and things um, unfortunately the record or the, the relationship sorry kind of fizzled out um, the manager and I wanted different things uh, he wanted a very different sound to what I was happy with and it got to the point where I couldn't compromise anymore so I left his company to go alone for a while and so began a, a year or two of 
not really knowing what to do. The thing about university for me, and I don't know if this is still true now, but certainly the course that I did, we got all of this tuition on how to um, record things to an optimum quality and um, how to be a better performer and all, all sorts of things like that, technical advice. But we never got any careers advice. We didn't get told, um, we never got an inkling of what what are we supposed to do with these talents afterwards. You know, you become a musician, but then the path after that is pretty... Um, I mean, there's lots of things that you can do. The music industry was was dying as it was at the time. The physical music industry where you buy CDs or cassettes or, you know, vinyl. It was all dying because people were going on to illegal downloading and then eventually, you know, we had Napster and then um, iTunes and things like that. And even without those challenges, we just never really got a steer on what are you supposed to do now. So I spent a couple of years just gigging in pubs. That's that's what I did. Um, I I played to pubs all over the southwest. The one piece of advice that may have been useful that one of our tutors had given us was move to London, um, because essentially if you don't live in London, I had this this really jars with me. This is not really a topic for everyday problems, but while we're sharing, um, there's always been this thing in the UK that if you're not in London, then you're nowhere. And that's always really bothered me because we have such vibrant towns, cities, even villages. We have such wonderful life outside of London. And London for me is lovely to visit as a tourist. And I used to enjoy um, going to work there every so often because it's just, you know, it's something of a spectacle. But it's just not the be-all and end-all for me. It has very little to do with where I live economically, culturally. It's It may as well be a completely different country. I love it, but I don't want to live there. Um, and it bothered me that this was the, the one, one of the most useful pieces of advice was, look, if you're not within the M25 circle, your chances of making it as a musician, however you define that, are significantly curtailed because that's where all the record industry people are. So I was going up to London doing lots of showcases um, and hanging out with sort of minor celebrities at gigs and things like that and it was cool but I couldn't get, it was expensive going up there all the time so I more and more I got a bit disillusioned and I, I moved towards um, just gigging in pubs around the southwest and I loved doing it and I was earning reasonably well from it but it was a lonely existence when you're 20 something and the nights that all your friends are socializing are the nights you're required to to gig in pubs and they will invariably be pubs where you don't know anybody you're responsible for all this gear that frequently I would blow fuses I had a, a PA that sounded great but was just a nightmare for things going wrong and then you know I'd have to try and find a spare fuse and, and talk nicely to the bar staff and on more than one occasion uh, would have to ask someone to find a screwdriver so we could unscrew a, the plug from a kettle somewhere to try and get the PA get the fuse out and try and get the PA working again it was really hard work it was really um, I wasn't ready for that yet I wasn't grown up enough for that um, I was still I, w I wouldn't even say I was a young man. I was still a child. Um, wh whatever your beliefs are in terms of at what point we become an adult, um, 
you know, the human brain isn't fully formed until you're in, in your 20s. And for men, it's slightly later, I believe, than for women. I certainly was not fully formed. I was not ready for the world yet. And um, and I started to really struggle with it. And the, I, I started to book less and less gigs. I started to struggle to cover rent. And eventually I went to a recruitment agency and just said, look, all my mates have got office jobs. They seem to be paying the rent, no problem. Get me an office job, please. Help me find something. And after a few interviews, I ended up in the savings and investments industry. If you're thinking this doesn't sound like the most exciting point of the story, well, it isn't. But it is one of the most important points because I got... A job um, working in savings and investments originally or to start with it was a mortgage broker and I was then um, picked to go and work on the savings and investments side of the business and I didn't have a clue what I was doing I did okay because I was friendly and willing and competitive and over the course of the 12 years that I ended up in that industry, I sat some I sat exams um, which were not mandatory in any of my roles, but which I felt might help me to have better conversations with customers, with financial advisors, who's another kind of customer to us. I sat countless exams and failed every single one of them, bar none. I, I failed... The six that I can think of, and I failed all of them, and that was with a heap of study. And it's because I didn't care. I wasn't interested. I was never interested. I met lots of great people. I did enjoy dressing up smart. I enjoyed getting into the culture of wearing a suit um, because I have a... I'm a bit of a... Oh, what, what am I? I'm a peacock. That's certainly true. I like to make the best of myself. You may may not, um, if you've seen pictures of me anywhere, you might not believe this, but uh, believe it or not, I do like to, to make the best of myself. I like to pick clothes that make me feel good, that I think make me look good. And getting into an industry which um, involved dressing smart, dressing on, in a formal way, to begin with, I found really addictive. I found that it, it led me towards... Um, quite addictive behavior in terms of buying shoes belts suits shirts cufflinks um it cemented my already um fascinated relationship with watches just made it basically made the habit more expensive um and i quite enjoyed all of that i quite enjoyed going to big business meetings looking great with a nice suit on and I was really good at my job. That's how I lasted so long. Um, well, I say lasted. Um, I would I would still be there now had I not made a decision just over 18 months ago to split from it. Um, I was managing people all over the country and um, commanding good money. And there were many aspects of the job that I really, really enjoyed. But over the years, the more responsible I had to become managing people, being responsible for other people's health, um, mental and otherwise, and responsible for their time. The more I felt in order to do that job, people managers have got such a, a, a tough, tough job 
because it's not just about teaching people how to to press the right buttons on a computer or making sure they're checked into the phone lines and things like that you have a responsibility to those people you have a duty of care and the business that I was in was going through a really tough time and people were getting sick we were having to put in too many hours we were having to face um too many hostile customers because things weren't going particularly well and we were answer uh, answerable to them is answerable a word i'm going with it and it was really really tough and it was affecting the health of my team it was affecting the health of my peers people were going sick um people were someone had a heart attack one of my friends had a, had a heart attack shortly before that there had been a suicide in the business and I'll never know whether that suicide was was connected to work items or items outside of work but if I'm absolutely honest and I know this probably sounds a bit um, exaggerated but believe me I'm surprised that there weren't more severe casualties health-wise uh, when we were going through our most difficult time and ultimately um, oh as we were going through some of our more difficult times my mum passed away after a really long and difficult um, battle with rheumatoid arthritis um, that's what we call it that was the the ongoing complaint that she had but what people don't realize about rheumatoid arthritis is that um, the rheumatoid aspect of it it's autoimmune it means that you are prone to it, it's um, look I'm no doctor so please don't don't quote me on this but in the same way that AIDS um, or HIV and, and other autoimmune diseases lead a person to be vulnerable to just catch everything that's what rheumatoid arthritis does it's not just about the crippling damage it does to your joints and, and it did for my mum it also demolishes your immune system now the good news is if you're listening to this and getting a little bit frightened even as my mum was getting more poorly, the um, the medicine to control rheumatoid arthritis was getting better all the time. Unfortunately, my mum just kind of missed the boat. And by the time things were really improving, my mum was too poorly really to see the, the benefits of that. Um, she was still really proud of the medical industry and the National Rheumatoid Arthritis Society who were doing such great things to, to look after people. My mum remained so pleased and relieved to the end that the, the medication was getting better and better and that other people would not have to go through what she did. But ultimately, uh, my mum passed away and I didn't know what grief was. I didn't know what to, to do with that. I was sad when my mum died. I was sad at the funeral. I wanted to get back to work sometime after that because I just didn't... No one knows how to grieve. No one knows what the right process is. For me, I could be fine for a period and then all of a sudden while having a conversation with someone at work or in a pub or you know walking in a field something completely unexpected would remind me of my mum and remind me how much I missed her and it was like someone had pulled all the breath from my lungs it was like I, I just completely I could have dropped to the floor and didn't know what what to do with myself I'd been becoming uh, even before my mum passed away, I had been becoming more and more of an anxious person. I didn't like seeing my mum get more and more poorly. We knew that she was going to die eventually from this, and I really struggled with that. I struggled with seeing what it did to to her, but also to my dad. 
um, in becoming her carer um, for so long. It really affected their lives. And I can tell you all of this now because I've had time to reflect and to look back at um, the, you know, the period leading up to my mum passing away. But while I was in it, I didn't realise how deeply this was affecting me. I, I was aware that I was sad, but when I look at the couple of years when my mum was really ill but still with us, I was not a complete person. And I, I think I can say the same is true for most of my family. We weren't right because mum was like the backbone of our family my mum and dad are figureheads for us they're both such wonderful personalities they've given so much to us and to see my mum and my dad change so much like that over the last couple of years while mum was around it was I don't know how to describe it it's now so obvious that we were not ourselves I personally was not well um, anyway, when my mum passed, and just shortly before my mum had passed away, my best friend Alex, uh, one of my closest friends, I, I, there's a handful of people I call my best friend, I've got a lot of love, um, <laughs> Alex was one of my, my bestest mates, and he was the bass player in my band at the time, Centrefolds, um, he passed away of, of a brain tumour, um, or multiple brain tumours by the end, and he'd had a long, hard fight with it as well, with cancer, and uh, I I, I apologise if this is getting anyone down, by the way. There, there is some, there's some light at the end of the tunnel, but it's really important, I think, to share with you these, these trials because in the past I've found that we feel more connected when we're honest and, and when I talk openly about these things, I usually am contacted by people saying thank you. I'm not doing it for the thanks, I'm doing it because I get the impression that some of this stuff is important to people out there. So I'm going to carry on and and share some of this. So in a short space of time, not just me, but all of the people closest to me lost people. Um, we lost people who, because they had died. We lost parts of people's personalities through grief, through loss, temporarily or otherwise. It was a big, big time of change. And I carried on. I, I went back to work. I didn't know what to do. I carried on. A year after my mum died, um, in now I've talked about this a lot on the podcast so go back and listen to to previous episodes rather I'm not going to do the whole story for you but in a in a grief and stress related episode um, I ended up um, falling from a window and breaking my back and shattering my heel and obviously was very poorly for some time afterwards um, Physically, I was damaged for a long time. Mentally, I wouldn't realise for much, much longer how I'd been affected. And I felt some sense of relief, actually, that my I felt like my body and my brain had, had deliberately sought to put me, to take me out of action for a while because I needed a break. I wasn't right. Even a year after my mum died, I, I wasn't addressing things, not just due to grief, but the immense stress of my job at that time. I was so proud and so determined not to let what I saw as weakness show. I wouldn't take time off for sickness. Um, I wouldn't tell anyone how much I was struggling. And it, it culminated in this event, which thankfully I survived. And um, like I say, go back to listen to some um, previous episodes where I, I talk about that. There's one where Liam and I talk in depth just about that incident. Um, but work-wise... Even though my boss was great at the time in saying, look, 
take as much time as you need to. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what was normal. I didn't want things changing in my absence. I didn't want to be sidelines on sidelined on major products, but uh, sorry, projects. I didn't. Um, I didn't want to be forgotten about. I didn't want anyone to think that I was weak, and so I actually only took a week off. And although when I started back, I was only doing a few hours at a time, I was still on quite a lot of morphine. So, I mean, there probably should be some rules against that anyway, right? Um, but, you know, I went back to work and my my boss was um, was actually really great at giving me space. I needed to recover, but I felt like I needed to be there. And so once again, even after I felt this relief at being given a break, I just went back to it for more and more punishment. And over the years that followed, things the situation at work got worse and worse and worse, more and more stressful. And if, you know, if the people closest to you dying doesn't give you strongly enough a message that life is too short, find a way to enjoy it more. And if being thrown out of a window <laughs> and you know, narrowly avoiding death or paralysis, jeez, isn't enough to say something isn't right here, change needs to be made. It had me wondering, like, what's it going to take? Even I knew subconsciously or even maybe consciously, I knew that I had to leave that job. But by then I was earning really good money. I was affording a lifestyle that I was enjoying, that, that, Car and I, my wife and I were enjoying, we could we could eat what we wanted, drink what we wanted, go on holiday when we wanted. We we weren't rich um, by, and I say that fully in the knowledge that it's all relative to some people. We, we probably were rich, but I was working with and for people who, well, let's just say, <laughs> yeah, it's all relative. I was not earning a fortune. I couldn't retire off it. Um, but I was earning well and it's addictive, right? A lifestyle that you enjoy when you get all these, you know, you can buy nice things and I'm starting to develop a fascination with expensive watches and, and, and things like that. You're doing all right. And I didn't want to give that up and pride wouldn't let me give it up anyway, because if I left it, I knew the only thing that would make me really happy was to work for myself. And I, was too afraid to go back to music at the time because music is such an uncertain career. Um, perhaps the reason we didn't get any careers guidance back at university was because you can't. You can't do it because, especially as a performing artist, there is no no substitute for just really, really fucking hard work. And the harder you work, the more you can be spotted by people. And that's where they say, you know, you create your own luck. There's a phenomenal amount of luck involved in the music industry. And in fact, in all the arts, I, I suppose. Um, but that luck is significantly more likely to, to be yours if you're working hard and doing it regularly. And my job over the last few years of um, of my, my of working there had given me less and less time and energy to work on music or anything artistic outside of my day job. In the first few years I was there, I'd managed to do... My my band was on 
uh, we managed to make our way onto TV. Our, our music was played on sports programs, on Hollyoaks, believe it or not. Um, we got lots of play on the radio, on BBC Six Music. Dermot O'Leary played us a few times on Radio 2. Uh, we played Glastonbury. We had a couple of slots at Glastonbury. We were having a great time, but when as life got more and more challenging just because we were getting older the whole band was you know we we suddenly had mortgages and three of the band had children and and then we lost Alex and my job was becoming incredibly uh, responsible I don't have children by the way and that's by choice um Cara and I just not interested um we um we found it harder to to keep the momentum going with the music and so it fizzled out I didn't know what to do when um when I knew that I had to leave my job, I just didn't know what I was going to do. And so Christmas 2019 was a bit of a turning point because, or I, it may have been a turning point, but I just hadn't made my mind up yet. Um, I knew as I finished for Christmas that I needed to leave my job, but I didn't know what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. When I came back to work on the 5th of January 2020, a year of clarity, we hoped, uh, I sort of knew something was in the air because we'd received an appointment uh, in our diaries from my boss um, just before we went off for Christmas and it asked anyone who could to be in Bath on that day, the 5th of January. Now, I knew that there was some reshaping of the company about to take place I'd been part of some of those decisions. So I had a hunch that it might be to do with some redundancies. What I didn't realise was that I was going to be one of those people. Um, in spite of all the, the conversations I've been party to um, about the reshaping and I was fully in support of it, it had completely slipped my notice that I might be, or not so much me, as the job that I was doing might be one of those that was no longer required. It turned out that the job that I was doing was going to be um, merged with something slightly different and that I had the opportunity to uh, apply for this now slightly different job which would have meant more money, more responsibility or uh, because they wanted to keep me because I was doing a good job I was offered uh, uh, something much easier and a nice healthy um salary etc or I had option C which was to take redundancy I was given plenty of time to think about it and I have to say the company actually in spite of all the, the stuff we'd been through um, and all the times I may have had my differences with lots of people there in, in the management they actually dealt with the redundancy I thought pretty well they were very caring um, when I came home and told Carl what had happened she there was a quick sort of check for the emotion on my face. Both of us were smiling. And she said, I think you know what you've got to do. And I did. I needed to leave. Like this was, the, how could the universe possibly give me any more signs? I needed to leave. And to cut that particular story short, I went back in and I told them, uh, my boss nearly fell off his chair when I said this. I think he's, he really thought I was going to take the job that had been offered to me, which would have been pretty cushy. Um, but 
I needed to get back to being me. I needed to go and do something different. So I, I accepted redundancy. Sad thing about all of this is that for all the people that I loved there and, and cared about, um, just as I was leaving, a global pandemic was beginning and I wasn't able to see anyone. I never got any leaving. No one that left over that period got leaving drinks. We never got a chance to say goodbye to anyone properly. Um, it was weird. We, we, we put everything on hold. We were like, yeah, we'll have the leaving drinks in a couple of months when this pandemic's blown over. <laughs> and, you know, a year and a half later, and I'm pretty sure most of those guys have forgotten about me. Well, may, maybe not forgotten about me, but I don't think we're going to bother with leaving drinks anymore. Maybe we will. Who knows? So a couple of things happened. The first one is why you're listening to this now. I had been talking to a, a friend, well, actually a friend of a friend or the partner of a friend, Mr. Liam Tarbit, who you will know as the other host of Everyday Problems. We had been for coffee again. We've covered this on previous episodes, so I won't labour the point, but we've been for coffee um, at a point where both of us have been struggling with depression and we got on so well I suggested we record the next conversation and maybe we could share it with people, see if it helped anyone else because we found talking about depression actually really uplifting and at times funny and helpful to hear other people's perspectives on it. And when I finally had the space to myself, when I didn't have um, a boss looking to see where I was and, and a team to look after, I turned that conversation into our very first Everyday Problems podcast episode and then Liam and I found time to record some more and some more and we're now at episode 15. Now I realise at this point by the way that there are other podcasts, lots of podcasts came to, to be during the pandemic because people had time on their hands. There are podcasters out there who have had hundreds of episodes that they put together in the time that we've done 15 but this has been really tough for us. I mean, for a start, you're dealing with two people who have been battling with depression and anxiety and stress, who are easily distracted, who are easily demotivated. I think it would be fair to say Liam and I are in a really good place at the moment, but much of that time has, has been spent um, battling with our own demons during a period when the whole world has been really struggling with its mental health. And as I say, Liam's been really busy with his job and I've been really busy trying to work out what the hell it is that I do now. And so we haven't had as much time as it might seem to record these podcasts because it's not just about finding the time to record it. We have to do some research. We have to invite guests. There's an awful lot of editing goes into it. And, and just finding the time for us to chat at a moment where we're not rushed. We quite often book in recording time and quite often have to cancel it because we need to give proper time to a podcast like this. We can't rush it. It's really important to give this the time that it deserves because you guys listening, you've been so kind and so supportive. And we want to do the same for you. So we don't rush it. Um, anyways, other things that happened for me over last year, apart from starting this podcast, which was an attempt to try and give back, um, I started writing a book. In fact, I did write an entire book last year. And I won't tell you too much about the, the book because at the moment it is with some literary agents who are considering whether they would like to help me take the book forward and get it published. Um, I don't know what will come of that. I've never written a book before. I, it might not be any good. Uh, but it's a story about my 12 years in the investments industry. It's a book 
it's a personal memoir. I haven't done anything of note that the, the world at large would know about, really. So I'm not a celebrity writing a memoir. I could see why people might not be interested in that. But it's also written from a mental health perspective. It's written about how badly um, in business we deal with mental health. It's, it's about peer pressure. It's about toxic masculinity. Um, it's about greed. It's about misogyny. It is very funny. There's lots of humour in there. Uh, it's about how ridiculous people can be. There's lots of lovely people in there. It's about warmth and friendliness and support and mentoring. It's about lots of different things. It's kind of a cross-section of life, really. But it's told through the lens of, of me, a guy who worked in a, the investments industry for 12 years. And there's a healthy amount of expose in there. So there's a, there's a... I don't give any sensitive data. I don't do anything that could get me into trouble. I haven't got time for a lawsuit. Um, but... I give very honest accounts with um, false names um, and no specific dates or amounts of some crazy, crazy things that took place during my time there. When you watch films like The Wolf of Wall Street or Wall Street um, and uh, Glengarry, Glen Ross, when you work in that industry, you see that then these things are not crazy. They're not exaggerated. I see things like that happening. Maybe not on the scale of the Wolf of Wall Street. That was, you know, that was some pretty top-end crazy shit going on um, in the world of investing. Um, but all the same, you know, many versions of that happen every day in the industry that I was part of. And it made me deeply uncomfortable after a while. Um, anyways, I wrote this book. And I'm now waiting to hear whether someone will do something with it. And I'll keep you posted on that. But the most important thing, the thing that I came back around to, other than this podcast, of course, is the music. A few months after I quit my job, I ended up quitting my band of 13 or 14 years centrefolds. I had hoped when I quit my job that with all that new time to myself I would be able to concentrate on promoting the band and, and writing more music for us and doing anything that the band needed to get us somewhere to take the weight off the other guys so that we could become successful. But with that time to myself I started to realise some things that were important to me and one of those things was that I needed to do something new and that I needed to be my own boss in every aspect. I couldn't be part of this thing which had become very much a, a democracy. We were kind of struggling as well. We were pulling in different musical directions and I needed to do something led by me. And so I quit the band and at that point I thought maybe I was finishing music for good. So I started to sell my, my guitars, my pedals, my gear. I didn't know what I was going to do for work. So I was trying to make some money and, and just clear out, get rid of stuff, you know. Um, and that was a really tough period but after a few weeks of having total clarity no boss no band no one to be responsible to other than myself I really missed music and I started to write again and after a couple more weeks I contacted a different set of friends because I wanted to do something um, totally fresh and unbiased by the the work that I'd done previously with centerfolds and we ended up 
recording an album by the end of 2020 we recorded an album the band is called Young Martyrs uh, the album is called Young Martyrs and we didn't have any label or management or anything like that it was all very homegrown we couldn't gig because it was during a time of pandemic there were no gigs there were no music venues open so we really struggled to promote ourselves and yet we were fortunate enough to have lots of um, success on smaller radio stations which we're still getting played on now which is wonderful we built up a tiny but mighty following on Instagram uh, and an even smaller one on Facebook I'm, I do the social media and I'm not really a Facebook guy I'm on Instagram a lot um, you can find the band uh, young underscore martyrs on Instagram um, you can find me on Instagram uh, I'm just at Tom Corneal and this is what I do now. I, I record the podcast, I do a little bit of writing here and there, and I try to make a living out of music. Um, lately, I have been busking for the first time in my life. It was terrifying, but I did it. Um, I have been organising gigs and selling tickets. Unfortunately, there's been lots of postponing there, of course, thanks to the, the virus. But it will happen. We now have a merchandise shop, so we have... Um, hats and CDs and plectrums and uh, other other goodies so if you're into the music if you're into Young Martyrs you can go and you can invest in some good stock there it's all it's all pretty stylish stuff as well um, so you, you'll like that I think I certainly hope so um, but the other thing to say is that I have realized for me the importance of I need to do things for me and my heart is only at peace my mind is only at peace if I'm working in a creative environment and if I'm doing it for myself that's going to make life difficult at times because it means that I have to be my own boss and I don't know how to do all the admin that goes with being your own person I'm in a in an industry like music it's so hard to make any money at all but you know what I'm happier struggling to figure that out than I was in my old job. Now I'm not saying that anyone doing jobs like my old job or any other nine to five is doing the wrong thing. If you are happy doing what you're doing, you have won at life. I'm so pleased for you. And I felt that way for quite a long period as well. And it was a wonderful feeling. But if you're not happy, then you need to make some changes. I did, and I'm happier struggling along now than I was for years earning a great salary doing something that was making me miserable and was pulling me away from my identity. I had a real split personality. I was one person in my day job and a completely different person outside of that. And that's dangerous. That, for me, was unhealthy. So, um, I'm a musician now. I'm a singer-songwriter. I always was, but now I'm doing it um, professionally. And... That kind of brings me around to, this is a bit of a plug and I make no apologies for it because this also is something that helps the podcast. You'll notice um, on previous shows that we have talked about the um, Patreon uh, page. So there's a website called patreon.com and what it does is it allows people who are doing work that they feel others might want to support for whatever reason it allows you to put yourself on a platform whereby other people can choose to support you so there are lots of different artists on there performing artists visual artists um recording artists who 
make art and are saying, do you know what, I don't want a record label. My fans like my music enough that I'm going to... I'm going to rely on them for support and for the, as long as they support me I can continue to make music and that will make them happy or make paintings or do performance art in whatever form it might be. That is partly what I'm doing. The, there is also the aspect of if you support me I will do work which gives back to the community. Now this podcast has always been about trying to shed some light for other people to make people feel less alone. If we talk about depression, stress, anxiety, um, prejudice, all sorts of things that, that we struggle with, have encountered, have been victims of, have been culprits of even, um, you know, if, if we can share our experiences, Liam and I, hopefully we are helping someone else out there to feel less alone and maybe to find some solutions. And the only way that we can do this is if you support the podcast by going to our Patreon page. Now, it isn't essential. If you can't afford to do it, then please don't. You get a free ride. There are good, good people out there who um, can't who need to concentrate on supporting themselves. And I totally get that. I have been there myself. I am currently there myself. Although I do support a couple of people on Patreon whose work I believe is worth backing. Um, but listen, if you feel like you can afford to and you want to support this podcast in helping people with mental health situations and other everyday problems and if you want to support my music and the music of Young Martyrs which we want to, to really, um, you know, we want to do big things but we need support in order to get there. If you can believe in any of that stuff and you want to support it either purely for the mental health aspect or purely for the musical aspect or a bit of both then please hit the link in the show notes uh, which is patreon.com forward slash Tom Corneal. Um, all one word. My surname is C-O-R-N-E-I-L-L. I'd be so, so grateful. This whole show, by the way, um, was not aimed at uh, just the shameless plug and, and aimed at trying to get some money out of you. But we've been doing this show for some time now and we've had thousands of um, thousands of uh, downloads we're so proud and we're so grateful to everyone who sent lovely messages that shows us some support and that makes the time to listen but we can't do it without your support so I'd like to say a huge thank you to those that are already uh, patrons of mine um, I'm the guy that records and edits and publishes the show Liam my co-host um, gives us his brilliant brain and thoughts and contributions uh, but it's actually me that funds and puts the whole thing together so if you can support me on Patreon you're supporting Liam as well in getting this, this show out there and we can't do it without you if you can afford to please 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 consider by the way it's for as little as £2.40 a month um, it's £2 and then they add some tax on top of it so for as little as less than the price of a coffee per month you could be supporting this podcast uh, with some really important issues and you can also be contributing to making some amazing music happen uh can i call the music amazing i think i can because the other guys in the band they're amazing so i can say it there we go um so thank you everyone who's already supporting the show and already supporting the music you make such a, a difference um and I should point out that those 
supporting me on Patreon also get exclusive blog posts, uh, occasional musical gifts, exclusive recordings, um, occasional physical gifts, um, hard copy things sent in the post. That's um, albums by me and by the band and um, other projects that I've been involved with. So if you want some freebies and you want to support some great projects, then please, please, please consider signing up. And yeah, this has been a bit of a longer than usual chat about Patreon because this stuff is important. It's certainly important to me, but I think that the things that we do on this show might be important to other people. So I make no apologies, but I do make a very, very, very big point of saying thank you to everyone supporting us past, present, future. You are wonderful, wonderful people. So, some final words from me, I guess, before we sign off. I won't bother with the usual outro today because we kind of done, there's no guests to thank and I've already told you a little bit about Patreon and the importance of supporting the show. Um, so what's, what's next for us? Well, Liam and I have lots of ideas for things we'd like to do with the podcast. It's just about finding that all-important time. All being well, Liam is going to record an episode uh, as well of his own, talking a little bit about himself and how he came to, to find it important to talk on here. Um, that's time permitting. Uh, Liam's super, super busy, so we wish Liam all the best with all of his current everyday problems um, and look forward to hearing that episode should it materialise. There's lots of guests that we want to talk to and lots of topics that we want to cover. So we want to get to episode 20 before the end of the year. Um, we've got some making up for lost time to do if we're going to hit that, but it would be a nice way to round things off for 2021. For now, I guess I just want to say thank you for everyone who's listened. Thank you for everyone who, perhaps via social media or in real life, has talked to me and to Liam about your mental health issues and other everyday problems that are maybe a bit taboo or, or seen as taboo anyway, things that are challenging. The world only gets better if we have conversations and we tell people how we're feeling and we are aware that other people are having a tough time and there might be really good reasons for that. If we can be more compassionate, if we can talk more, if we can be more honest then things can get better. Um, there you go. I guess that's my words. If, if I can call that wisdom, then that's my words of wisdom for the day. Thank you so much, um, everybody, for listening. Um, you can... Liam Tarvit is on LinkedIn. You can follow him there. I am on Instagram. You can follow me there. I'll put the links in the show notes. Um, please make sure that you tune in for the next show whenever that may be and look look after yourselves keep washing those hands wear a mask if you feel more comfortable doing that and if you're listening sometime in the future what does that look like what's going on where you are i want to know jetpacks are we still wearing masks right in lots of love take care <laughs>